Hello everybody, welcome back to today's podcast. We are really excited about today's guest. He's one of the biggest names in golf instruction. He's coached some of the best players in the world, including Lydia Ko, Cameron Champ, Sam Horsfield, Justin Rose, Danny Willett, and we can't forget the one and only Mr. Tiger Woods. He's also been voted as the top golf teacher in the world by players on the PGA Tour. Now today's guest is, is very different. He's a very different style golf coach. His core teaching philosophy is really driven by a passion to help golfers evolve into the best players and people they can be, not just the best swingers. And as you'll hear in today's podcast, this guy is he's out there a little bit, but I say that as a compliment in a good way. He's a, he's a student of the human experience, which is just so important to understand if you want to play your best golf. So get comfortable today because this is a longer one than usual as we discuss what he's learned from years of coaching the best players in the world and what's helped him become such a sought-after successful golf coach. So please welcome to the podcast, Sean Foley. Okay, Sean Foley, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, Pierce and Andy. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on, guys. It's a pleasure. It's, um, it's great to have you on. And um, we know that there's just so much we could talk about. We were just chatting off, off air a minute ago. There's so much, and we want to... We want to dive deep into your brain because we know there's so much knowledge and wisdom there. But before we get into the main content, we'd love to get like a, a bit of background from you, Sean, really for our listeners as well, in, in terms of you've reached the, an amazing height in, in your career as a golf coach, really successful, coaching the world's best. How did you, what's led you to get to that point? How has that all happened? What do we need to know about the younger Sean Foley that's led to this position? Yeah, I I think if I could answer that, then I could bottle it up and then I could fly you guys on my plane to do this in person. You know what I mean? It's I'm not I would love to I remember when I was a kid I read that book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and I was like, Oh, that's it. That's all I gotta do. And I learned over time that's not that's not actually it. So it's 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 not like there wasn't good parts to it, but I followed it and it still was like, Hold on, why am I still waiting tables here? Um, I have highly successful habits. I, I think more than anything, what's always connected me to it is I've always been very social. Um, I love to talk. Um, it's how I learn. Actually, I took a test and <laughs> my poor mom who told me that I had one mouth and two ears, I actually learned from speaking. So sorry, mom. Um, it's <laughs> so a lot of guilt that came laying in bed, boys, thinking, she's right. I got two ears. I need to listen more. And then I kept listening to what people were telling me. And I'm like, I don't want to listen to that. <laughs> um, but I, I would say, you know, um, the game itself, uh, the game of golf, I was really fortunate to have a dad from Glasgow who wasn't about to uh, give me memberships and and buy and buy me golf clubs is going to have to more be earned and so i literally grew up like working in a back shop and uh never in the pro shop actually i hung out in the pro shop a lot but i always figured that uh, uh that wasn't my my thing i really liked being on the range and i don't know i just you know i just enjoyed it i i love i love things that are challenging um i'm not sure outside of triathlon if anything's more challenging than golf um, and maybe, maybe triathlon's not as challenging as golf, <laughs> but 
I just think the constant quest to get better, but I've always was fascinated as a kid at people who could hit the ball really beautiful and hit the ball beautiful. Not, not so much like swing beautiful, but you know what it's like watching these guys hit balls. It's like, it's so, I mean, I, I love the NBA, but when you watch someone hit a four iron from 240 to two feet in the NBA, that'd be like making a three pointer from the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. The greatest levels of golf are just the most complex and amazing. It, it's just yeah. how I feel, you know, um, because the math is you're not going to hit a good shot. <laughs> so <laughs> when you see an amazing shot, you just have to recognize it as a masterpiece. So that, that was always uh, fascinating to me. And then I was fortunate because my dad, um, I guess my dad knew at a certain age that I was going to look for mentorship amongst other men. And so I ended up being a part of junior programs from, you know, my first golf lessons are from Greg McHatton, who is pretty much at the hierarchy of the golfing machine. So think about that, you know, Mm -hmm. like how I kind of gravitated towards science, but not totally because I'm a I'm a Bob Tosky guy in a big way. Um, I'm I, I studied all of them like it was. All I had to do was deal with, with was how different that I was that like, OK, one, got this kid from the suburbs listening to hip hop. And two, he's reading golf books. Right. That wasn't like neither of those were cool. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> That's why I love now to see the growth in the game. The proof of it to me is my friend schoolboy Q, who grew up in Compton and L.A. in the gangs. And then found golf and never realized how depressed he was till he found golf. And he's now this super wealthy hip hop artist. He makes incredible music talking about his life and he's playing golf. Cause when I liked both of those things at the same time, that was just fodder to get bullied. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It, it, It was so, you know, I just, I've always liked what I like. And then I just focus on that and, and do it. So my dad put me where I worked at golf courses but from the West coast of Canada to starting the golf machine with Greg McHatton. So all it's funny, you know, doing this thing pro sender with Dave Woods, because ever since I was 11, all I was ever really taught was wrist angles and accumulators. And, you know, I, I feel like I got pretty good, pretty quick learning how to use the things that are attached to the club, making the club move. So I'm not against, you know, all the biomechanics and, and, and all the kinetic stuff, it's, it's all part of it, but I can teach any amateur in the world to shift their weight in turn, but I can't teach all of them how to get the club face square. So I think that really matters. So from Greg McHatton, it was a perfect early experience um, that there may be more definition to this than all the opinion I'm reading in golf digest. Right. And so then I went to Vancouver, uh, and there's an incredible golf course there, one of the top 10 courses in Canada called Shaughnessy. Um, it's right on the inlet, and it's it's a gorgeous place. And that's where a lot of the West Coast um, really elite and competitive players played. And so there was a pro there named Jack McLaughlin who passed years ago. But Jack was one of like the Canadian GOATs as it related to great playing ability, great coaching ability, own the pro shop. He was just the pro, right? So in in America, there's a lot of great pros, you know, Dave Woods being one of them. But like Bob Ford is like the guy that people talk about. That would have been Jack in Canada. 
And so Jack worked with Lori Kane, Richard Zokel, Ray Stewart, Brent Franklin, Jeff Kramer. Um, people in the Canadian golf community would know all those names. Um, so I've gone from the golfing machine and doing all my stuff and hitting tires and, <laughs> you know, all, all, all this stuff like this. I'm so bad. I'm still so bad in the green side bunker because my whole life I was like this. <laughs> Right. When people are like, man, DJ, he, look at how much he bows his wrist. You can hit it from there. I'm like, you can absolutely hit it from there. Right. But it, you might need to be a little more of an athlete than I am to be able to do it from there. That that'll that'll suffice. But that is no good. OK, that's not that's not a friendly place to be. And so. Jack was like different. He used to get them to hit balls and bare feet and work on their iron play out of the bunker. And everything he did was related to like score. It was all score related. So, you know, um, my irons aren't solid. He just throw them in a bunker for two days. You know, so I got to, I got the best of both worlds. I got this kind of very spiritual world and this very technical world. Um, and I never actually, until you asked that question, I never really thought about it like that. And so, then my dad worked for DuPont, so we got moved back to Toronto. And so before we left, he asked Mr. McLaughlin, you know, my son's super interested in this and he's intrigued by it. I'm not sure what he's intrigued by, but how do I keep this going? And so Jack's version in the East Coast of Canada was Ben Kern. And Ben Kern was best friends with George Knudsen, uh, was sponsored onto the PGA Tour by Lee Trevino. Uh, ben was one of the Ben was the first Canadian-born kid to finish first-team All-America at New Mexico State. He lost to Steve Melnick, who did many years of, of broadcasting on the uh, on the Masters. And so Ben was like one of the best players to ever live in Canada. Played eight years on tour, then went in search of swinging better. And George taught him what George did, and then Ben hit snap hooks and then became the director of golf at uh, the National Golf Club in Woodbridge, which is pretty much the standard, like the gold standard golf course in Canada. Um, the hardest course by far, but not not silly hard, just really hard. And so at both of these places, um, I'm kind of like the kid who's trying to be in with all these great players who are all, you know, a decade older than me. And so I spent a lot of time just sitting on a wire basket watching really good players hit golf balls. You know, um, and your question kind of takes me down memory lane a little bit, to be honest with you. And so I guess I don't really know why, you know, to answer the question totally. But as I kind of investigate this narrative, I'm starting to kind of draw a little bit of an alignment on where that all comes from. And so Ben was uh, Ben was like a god to me. And so. I just guess that I kind of grew up watching everyone go to work and not look overly thrilled about it. And then when I looked at Jack and Ben, they like, you know, they were like up there with Icarus, like they were just flying and I, they, they looked like they enjoyed their life and they were really present and connected to what they did. And so I guess I thought, you know what, being a golf pro looks a lot better than being a business, you know, being in business or engineering or anything like that. That's what I was interested in. Um, so that's kind of the that's the genesis of the passion that evolved over time uh, into now. And would you say that for you, Sean, it was always, you know, was it always for you like 
I want to go down the coaching route. Was 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 there ever a point where you're like, I really want to make it as a player, or was it like I'm just so interested in this this you know this learning side of things and coaching? Was that like the route that you had at a very early age that you're like, yes, this is where I want to go? No, I mean yes, yeah. I mean I just wanted to be like them, really. So that's what they were. I, I didn't want to do like the whole pro shop thing. Right. It's not. No, look, it's a necessary thing. It's a huge part of golf. Some of the greatest people I've met are all head pros. That's what they do. But I just knew it wasn't like it wasn't for me. Right. Um, and. So I think if I said I wanted to be a, on the PGA Tour, I think that's probably just because I thought I was supposed to say that. Um, I remember being at the National with Ben. And being on the back of the range with the Canadian tour players who were like gods to me at that time. I mean, this is like when Steve Stricker and guys are playing on the Canadian tour, right? Um, just completely aged myself again. <laughs> like, wow, I said a couple of things last week. I was like, holy shit, like, were you around with Ben Franklin? Um, but all my buddies who became Canadian tour players and a few who made it to the Nike tour, the nationwide tour, right? They used to give me a hard time because I never went on a course with them. I always sat at the back of the range with Ben and the pros. That was just my – and then I would sit in Ben's office till he would just basically nicely ask me to leave. I was just enamored by these guys. So I think that that was part of it. But I've always been like a why individual, and I've never – you know, growing up was kind of difficult because everything I told, I always – I always, you know, was challenged. So it's like I was 10 years old, and someone said, you know – what are you? And I'm like, what do you mean? And they said, what's your religion? I go, I'm a Catholic. And they went, oh, you're a Catholic. And then I thought to myself, like, why am I something I didn't even choose? Like, why am I this? Like, it seems like a pretty big decision. Why can't I pick it? Like, why am I just that? And so I've always been a bit annoying like that. And I don't think I was easy as a kid with my teachers in school and stuff because no, man, I just don't like being lied to. And I just feel like we have been from the start and the unlearning process that started for me in my early 20s was pretty painful, like looking around and just going, wow, like what have I been told? Like, why, why are they trying to create this domestication in my thinking? And so, you know, you, you're different. So you just do that and, you know, you deal with it. And uh, so, yeah, I, that's kind of what I would, that, you know, that's kind of how I would, how I'd answer that. Mm, love it love it and it, yeah it's just, it's just it's full immersion isn't it you've fully immersed yourself around these great talents yeah. of the game and obviously and you know whether it's fortune or whether it's just uh you know some people say right place right time but ultimately you still have to go out there and spend your time doing that so full credit to you and so i, I love that i love that it's always nice to listen to where golfers or golf coaches or someone who's who's great at their job how they've got there um and what one part of you with your your role, you'll always be known as a great golf coach, but you'll always be known to having helped one of the best golfers of all time, arguably the best, Tiger Woods, and for a good period of time as well. So I suppose we, we have to talk about that a little bit. How did that even happen? And what was your response to that when it did happen? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit, it's a little like, you know, it's the naive. It's being naive in, in a sense, and it's it in the sense. What I mean is, I literally 
my wife and I were in Canada and had great jobs. Um, I was kind of one of the, I was probably the biggest name in Canadian instruction. I had people on a waiting list. I was at Glen Abbey, which is one of our great golf courses, host of the Canadian Open forever. Um, as a Canadian kid, I was in heaven with that. But I had this, you know, I had this kind of vision and dream. Look, I spent over a decade with tour players. So it's their species. It's, it's <laughs> a species. Oh, yeah. Right? So yeah. I, I knew how to talk to them. I understood them. I realized that nothing would ever be good enough. And that I realized that they're potentially like closer to a sniper than they are the Dalai Lama. And so, you know, I just, for whatever reason, that's kind of, and then look, I, I grew up reading Ledbetter and Butch Harmon. Those guys are gods to me too, right? And I mean, it's amazing that when you go one day from, having all these heroes and the next day you're standing on the range with them at the masters in 2007 as their peer. I mean, that's like out of body stuff. Right. But mm. I would looking back now and I was doing the best I could at that time. My drive was more outside in, in the sense that, you know, the money and the notoriety and the success that could come for it and how I was perceived and that I belong there that insecurity drove that really hard. And that that's fine. Imposter syndrome happens at CEO levels all the time. You know, I, 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 if somebody told me they haven't felt it, then I just think they're full of shit because it's a real thing. And it's the thing is what I did is over time, I collected and picked up on what the driver was because as that continued to be the driver, then all of a sudden I was like, wow, the things that used to bring me joy are now bringing me pain. Like what's going on with me here, right? So what's the reason I started out doing it? I love to inspire people. I love the golf swing. I love the game of golf. I enjoy being right. So as long as I focus on those things, then that's that, that that's going to be enough. But that's how you build it and de define it over time. But we cannot forget that we're working with people. These are human beings, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's – somebody asked me, like – about how I deal with people. And I just said, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, one, it's like when I improve myself, then everyone around me seems to improve. Um, when I'm in a shitty mood, I don't really find many people I enjoy being around. When I'm in a good mood, I can be around people I completely disagree with on everything and have love for the fact that we disagree. <laughs> so it's, I know what's happening outside of me is directly a reflection of where I'm at in my own head at that moment. And it's going to be good or bad. And there's not really much we can do about it. It's just when it's bad, just don't open your mouth. So, you know, with Tiger, he's a human being. And for a lot of years, people didn't think that he was. And so when I started with Tiger, um, we left Canada in 06 because I got a visa to come to Florida. And so my wife and I both quit our job. I think we took about a 10,000% pay cut. Um She's as crazy as for me for believing in what it was that I was dreaming about. <laughs> um, that this, like, none of this happens uh, without Kate Foley. That's just not even possible. It's not even, she's just amazing at everything I'm not good at. And most of those things are what makes this work. So it's easy to be me. The rest of the stuff, as you guys know, is there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot to it, right? Um, mm. And if you're not clear, then you're not good. Because if you're worried about this, this, and that, how are you going to be present within this? So um, hats off to Kate. <laughs> um, 
So we moved down here and where we live, like right now I'm in my backyard, but about a thousand yards in that direction is, uh, is some apartments where we move. And Tiger's old house is about like 2000 yards that way. Okay. <laughs> okay. So when I was a kid, my dad used to make me read Napoleon Hill all the time. And the book was called Think and Grow Rich. Um, and so he talked about the subconscious like in 1917. So he basically said, you can talk it into, re in, in, you can talk it into reality. So I was like, all right, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of was, I think it's a little vague. I've, I've learned more than then, but it was, I'm very glad that he made me read that book. Um, so I kind of imagined it all and thought I'm going to come down here and be in the set epicenter of where all these tour players are. And then I'm gonna start working with tour players. But my main thought in my head was that I wanted to work with Tiger Woods. And so that made me the laughing stock of the Canadian PGA for quite a few years. Cause I used to say it out loud. Um, <laughs> and so in Canada, we don't, we're not really taught to think like that. You know what I mean? Like ambition can be arrogance, but think about ambition. Ambition can also be very negative. So ambition is not like a great word. It's, it's, it, 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 it's a tricky word. And so we moved here. I started coaching um, at this junior academy here. And I had a, I, we had two kids. And then I got a call from Stephen Ames um, about three months later when I had had not signed one client and didn't have one job. And so this was all looking like <laughs> a little like a bad idea. But I don't know. I just I didn't I didn't doubt it, you know. And so. Stephen called me, hired me, then Sean O'Hare called me, um, hired me. Then Hunter Mahan called me, hired me. Then Justin Rose played with Sean O'Hare at Beth Page Black uh, for two days. And then he called me and hired me. And that's how it happens, right? That's how it happens. And you'll be, the, you, you know, you'll be the bell-bottom jeans until they're not cool anymore. Like you got to, when, when you hit that perfect wave, just stay on that thing because it's going to, you're going to absolutely crash on waves, right? It's interesting when you get fired and your name is on the ticker of Sports Center. You're like, holy shit, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's a you're you're in the airport bar and you're like, everyone in here right now is looking at me and yeah. some are some are happy and some are like, poor guy. That's the, yeah. it's a little that's a little suffocating. But that look, that's my fault. That that's what I'm saying is, you know, you got to be careful what you wish for because when we have dreams. We see it and it's just beauty. We don't really see the other duality of the reality of what it what it is, right? Like I, I'm not going to uh it's going to be impossible for me to sense what joy feels like if I don't feel what pain feels like. So you, you can't Absolutely. you can't have one without the other, right? Mm -hmm. And so, anyways, Tiger called me um and said to me that he had seen um great improvement. And in Hunter Mahan and Sean O'Hare and Justin Rose. And he talked to Sean a bit about me. And it was, you know, end of August 2010. Probably didn't roughly really start working till first couple of weeks of September. And that's how it all started. Hi, guys. One question we get asked all the time is how can I get coaching from yourself and Pierce? Now, we do coach in person at the Grand here in San Diego. But for those who can't make it in person, we've built something that's just as good. We've created the Me and My Golf Academy. 
This is basically our online coaching academy where we've literally poured everything that we've learned from the best players and coaches in the world on not just about how to swing it great, but also what it takes to actually play great golf and get around the golf course in, in as least shots as possible because that's really the aim. There's over 17 specific coaching plans where we actually guide you through simple lessons that we know get results. Some of the most popular ones are Total Driving, Break 90, Ultimate Irons, and Complete Chipping. And we really believe that these are the best online courses on the planet to help your game. Plus, we have an amazing member community over there with loads of other benefits and discounts on some amazing brands. So if you're fed up of having too many swing thoughts and you can't figure out why you're so inconsistent and seeing no improvement, then give this a go and you can see if it's for you. Our members are seeing some incredible results in as little as only one week and we'd love to see if we can help you out with your game. So if you want to find out more, click the link in the show notes or simply download the Me and My Golf app. Let's get back to the show. Nice. Amazing. That's yeah, how it all started. And then, you know, it was, it was kind of perilous in a sense because... You know, you know how it is and you know how the media, how the media is. And I've hardly even been mentioned yet uh, on the golf channel. And then boom, you know, just like that. And so, I, you know, I guess I was fortunate to endure enough hardship growing up. Um, most of it was self-induced. Um, almost all of it was self-induced um, and kind of go through some struggles and then struggle through university. So even though it was like something new, I'd already been through things that were much worse than that. And so that's the best thing about pain. It's like, if it gets to an extreme point, then what happens after that isn't as much. So it's, it's, it's really important to be able to endure it. You know what I mean? Because that's what life is going to give it to you. That's a, a guarantee. So that was a kind of an interesting thing. Um, and then look, I mean, I was working with a guy who's, you know, whole world, um, imploded 10 months earlier, mm. you know, and he went from this deity to a punchline overnight, you know, and he was the brunt of all jokes and corporations left him. And so that's, that's not the same. So I wasn't naive to think that I'm always going to, whatever we do is going to get compared to 2000 anyways, because it's just, that's how people are. And so I'm probably going to be a punching bag. Um, but I also, in my own arrogant way, thought that I knew something at that time that no one before me knew and that, you know, I have this tattoo that it says didactic and didactic, uh, means born with the intent to teach, uh, with the ulterior motive to preach ethics. So it's kind of just a reminder to me that when I'm on my healer soapbox, that all I can do is ask the right question of someone for them to heal themselves. Right. So, um, yeah, but look, I, I don't, you are who you are because of the good, the bad and the ugly, right? It, it's not just cause it's good or anything else. So I don't think when you're going through hard times or challenges that it's the most enjoyable thing in the world, but you know, it's funny if, 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 if we go somewhere to give a speech, they hire us because what we've accomplished. And then in my case, I just share with them all the failures I made and what I learned from. Them. And so it's like, you're here because of what you accomplished. And it's like, yeah, I am, but I'm here also because I wasn't afraid to fail. And then when I failed, I looked in the mirror and tried to figure out what my part was in it. And that's why I didn't do it again. 
And so, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's yeah. so important. And we need to teach that to people. You know, it's like I did a, a golf school for the last two days and I've not really done many golf schools like this in many, many years. And uh, one of the guys, he said to me, um, the first day we had a good day, had a bit of a light bulb moment and, you know, happy days. We had a little happy hour after everyone was happy. Then he went and played nine holes. Right. So I saw him in the morning and I said, hey, I didn't know if he was hung over or what. And I said, hey, and he looked really down. And he goes, I regressed on the course yesterday. I said, no, you're a 21 handicap. So you just went back to being a 21 handicap. <laughs> so, just you know, the thing is we have to understand is, just because someone can, just because a child can say the alphabet, it doesn't mean they know how to form a word yet. And just because someone can form a word doesn't mean they can form a sentence. Well, that goes all the way into a novel. So even some of the greatest literary works of all time came from someone who used to sing the ABCs with their mom. And so, it, it you know, what did they do? They just kept writing and they kept writing and they probably didn't like 90% of what they wrote but they just kept writing. And that's really the process with, you know, um, uh, with, with golf. And the problem is, is that, you know, I think I said to him, I was a little brash, but I think I said something like, you can't buy this shit on Amazon, sir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he, and he knows that, right. I mean, the guy's a doctor. Yeah. So from the time he wanted to be a doctor to the time he charged his first patient, it would have been probably 12 years. So he, you just got to get them back in and say, we have so much work to do on these mundane things. It's interesting you mentioned about the biggest failures or lessons, or is it the same word? Um, yeah, exactly. Got from Tiger, what what were what were the things that really I suppose? And this is we we say this all the time. It might even be in our list of questions. What moments with Tiger that were perceived failures or learnings would you say were you are you most thankful for? It just it just reminded me that you don't teach someone like that. What are you teaching him? <laughs> you know what I mean? His subconscious has forgot more than your mind will ever even <laughs> ever even understand. And so I think how I handled Lydia was from the okay, I had one goat and now I got a baby goat. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Like literally like literally a baby goat. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, baby ghosts are cuter too they're not as aggressive um, <laughs> and I just you know I've said it before I just kind of overcoached him whereas I realized like you know I've been very fortunate to have a lot of great mentors and PhDs and, I, and when it comes down to swing I completely understand what I'm talking about do I know as much as some people I don't, but I don't really feel like my business will improve if I know that much more. So it's to me, it's like kind of, you know, my gift is the human part. And I did focus on that quite a bit, but that should have been the con the continuity of that. And so, you know, I don't like to really discuss things in hindsight because everyone sounds like a genius, right? But I think with Lydia, it was more, she had all these questions. And it seemed like after months and months and months of answering, like every time I showed up, it was like so many questions from grip pressure to positioning of feet to like, I mean, everything. <laughs> it was, mm -hmm. and then other things like life things. Um, 
is that when we got to that point, when when she had no more questions, where I showed up one day, you got any questions? She's like, no, not really. We are gone. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like I saw. Have you guys seen Ted Lasso? No, um, only a little bit of it, but yeah, it looks is yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the two the whole you concept, would, but yeah, yeah, I think the two you would love it. Ted Lasso, yeah. like it's he's is too good, right? But in the newish, in the latest show, the boys have been like pushed up into the Premier League, and so when the writers write their stories, they're put in last place, and so they see this in the locker room all come up on their phone, and they're all upset, and they're you know. And and they're like, this is bullshit, and you know, blah blah blah. And so, Ted Lasso is sitting there. And remember, he's an American football coach, not even a European football coach, and doesn't even know the difference between Maradona and Pele. And so, it's too good, right? <laughs> and he's he's watching him, and he calls for the team bus to come and pick them up. They go in the team bus, and they drive down where where they're at in the town. Um, they they're Richmond. Uh, a football club which i think is yeah. a made-up team and they go in the sewer system and so they're sitting in the sewer system and the scene is like you can watch it 10 times over because it's really quite funny and they're all sitting there going what are we doing here but one of the guys is like ted always has a message and they're like i hope so and so ted starts talking about how they'd all read that about themselves and the team and how the reason that London had this sewage system was because of this, this, and this, and how they had to build their own sewage system in their soul so shit could just run out and flow through you. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think that, that that was kind of it. Like Lydia thought, you know, she was taught to hold on to the club like there was a bird in her hands. But she wasn't taught that initially. She had learned that on the way. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, her backswing had too much runoff and she dragged it and floated the club in transition and then stalled out because it's like, how are you going to release this thing if you're not stiffening? So I asked Tiger about grip pressure and he said, I said, zero out of 10. He said, can I say 11? I'm about to move this thing as fast as I can. How am I going to hold on to it soft? Right? Like, it's like, duh. So I think I think that's what I learned is that I should have just asked better questions of him that would then have pushed him towards his creativity um, more that way. And then kind of just kind of come up like I did with Lydia with the non-negotiable list. So my non-negotiable list with Lydia was um, the weight, her posture, where her weight was and her alignment. So the only time it would ever get once we built it back kind of to how it was as as a child. The club face might have been a little less shut, but the rest of it looked. I remember a, a picture someone sent me on Instagram, a picture of her when she was 15 at the top of her backswing and then in the Olympics um, in Japan. And it was like back to being a Rolls Royce, but it was just polished a little bit cleaner. But it looked identical. Like it looked identical. And I was like, perfect. That's it. Because most of the stuff I've read in neuroscience is saying that that initial DNA of movement and those early structures of neurons and how they adapt into the whole nervous system, those are unchangeable. You know, those are unchangeable. So I think that 
the trick to instruction is when someone comes to see you, it's like, okay, you know you have a preference and that's super dangerous. So be aware that you're not talking about what you'd like to see in him because that's what you'd like to see. That's not what he's there for. That is not what he's there for. You're either there to help him get better or make sure he continues to get better at what he's already doing. And that's, so look, if someone comes to you and sometimes people come to you and they're playing well, that's no man's land. Like that is no man's land, right? The easiest thing in the world um, as a coach, as long as the, the player is, is invested, is when they're, you know, call it a hundred feet away from rock bottom. Right. So they're not even there yet. And so from a business standpoint, it's not great because they're not going to be playing well for probably some time. But I don't think I ever really thought this is not good for my business. It, it, it's just something I enjoy doing. I mean, you have to diversify and have tentacles of, of re revenue in, in our job. But I just. I just have learned that I enjoy the challenge and the climb way more than I like the summit. And I, I love the gruelingness of like, you can, you can see like there's a speck of light at the end, but I'm just so comfortable in that darkness and the tunnel at that moment. I love knowing that there, I can still see the light. I don't want to be here forever, but I just feel like that's where I learned the most about myself. That's where I learned the most about the game. And that's also where, you know, at that time, you're telling that player who's super open because they're super lost and they're convinced that you can help them. That's when you can see if like what you know works or not, because they're going to do it. Yeah. When, when someone's playing great, it's almost like, you know, I'm sitting at Augusta boys and I don't get me wrong. I love the place. I have so many great memories and so many like nightmares about the place. Um but all these players are coming off the golf course who haven't been hitting it well. And every single iron shot, unless it's a par three, is on an uneven slope, an mm -hmm. uneven lie. And then we come back to the range and start hitting off a flat lie. And then we all leave patting each other on the back because now the beer is going to taste better and the taco might be better because we feel like we figured it out and we can just be like, oh, okay, good. I made it through the day. All right, good. And then I'm sitting there now. I'm now I'm too old. I'm sitting with Butch Harmon on this bench, and we're we're giggling like watching what's going on. <laughs> and it's like, what are we doing here? Like, I mean, I love being there and I love working with my guys, but why did I not just spend a week with this guy on a golf course with uneven lies? Like, what am I even coaching right now? You know what? We had a we had an interesting. We had the same thing when we went to St George's with with Aaron a couple of years ago. We actually played the course about a month before, did some filming there. And obviously, you know what it's like. It's the psychedelic fairways there. Mm. So you get all sorts of interesting lies. And then we walked around the corner to the practice area and it was the most beautifully mown, perfectly square, perfectly flat. Every blade of glass, grass was in the right place. Me and Andy just looked at each other pretty much at the same time and went, why and, and it was full the range was and the range was full of golfers and I, and I went what are they all doing they're all surely wasting their time and now who are we to say this we're we do what no, we no. do and, they, and yeah. they play but we're looking at it and going surely this is not the prep that's needed what they're doing right now but anyway, yeah well ever, i think i think 
I think everyone is probably slightly different. And, you know, you know, some people believe in the placebos of their superstitions. And I, I think we could probably equate to the fact that uh, when they even though they think if they use a 1969 uh, quarter that they put the best with it, I'm sure if we kept stats over years, we'd probably realize it's not true. OK, so <laughs> there, there is some of that. But when you look at like the SAS, right. Or the Navy SEALs. And these are the elite of the elite and the PGA Tour are the elite of the elite. Okay, they, I can't really speak for the SAS as much, but I can't believe it's much difference because they were kind of the original special forces group anyway. So I think they taught a lot of everybody else. But with the SEALs, you know, they get 100 qualified applicants. And by qualified, athletically and academically, these guys are rock stars, right? So call it Q school, right? Call it Q school. And then what they do over seven days, which they call hell week. And it's like, you know, when you, when you're sitting in the airport and your flight's canceled and you're like, Oh, this is like hell. And no, it's not. <laughs> okay. It, it's not fun, but it ain't hell. All right. So then they send them to hell week. And at the end, like 10 qualify and they called them special. And why were they special? They were special because they could endure the most pain and they could just, you know, push through all the quitting voices in their head and keep pushing on. Right. So. You look at that and then they become Navy SEALs. And so I had the fortune of meeting a couple in L.A. this year and I actually didn't know they were. Um, but I sat down at this table with my friend. Um, Joel, and he had these other men at the table. And um, it was a fantastic night. It was like the perfect balance of masculinity and vulnerability. Like it was a, just like a learning powwow. It was super dope. Um, and so they were all in different businesses. And I sat down. I sat down next to this guy and I was like, just something about him. It just kind of was stunning. It was like this aura. But I didn't think much about it. And so at some point they were saying, I can't take it from the range to the course. And I was like, I have a different theory on that. My theory is the range is absolutely nothing like the course. And if I measured every shot anyone hit on the range in 50 range balls, they're probably going to make about seven bogeys. <laughs> okay. Like even, even the ones you hit and you twirl, it came down five yards short, which means you're plugged in the lip of the front bunker. So it was a beautiful <laughs> swing on video and it was lovely, but you're in trouble. Right. So that, that's a, that can be easily de dealt with. Right. And with the thanks to TrackMan, you can actually now strokes gained your practice sessions with with the new software, which is really helpful. You see how many people just in that scenario uh, hit that terrible shot that you never see after they hit a ball every eight seconds. And then we go on the course and wait 27 minutes to hit a ball and think it's mental. But it's not mental. It is a lot of it has to do with the, the training. So the SEALs have a saying, trust your training. So anyways, long story short, they asked me that and I tell that same thing I've just told you. And the guy next to me goes, that's really accurate. He's like, how do you know about all that? I'm like, I don't know. I study what I can and I read what I can and there's not much out there, but he goes, no, that's really accurate. And uh, Joel's giggling. And I was like, oh yeah, it is. And he's like, yeah, I'm a SEAL. <laughs> I'm like, ah, there we go. And he's been in for nine years and I don't know what he's done, but they're active. It's not like they don't take breaks. So I brought up the when they went to Islamabad to uh, get Osama bin Laden and spoke about how the helicopter went down. 
and how crazy that must have been. And he said, no, they would have trained for that, too. They would have trained for both helicopters to go down. And many times. He said, most of the time, we always train for the worst case scenario. Right. So then that brings you to the golf scenario, which is not so life and death, even to the players, if they feel like it is. Look, a lot of times what we look at as mental issues sometimes are just complete failures of perspective. Right. Mm -hmm. But we also have the lack, to have of, the lack of preparation for the what ifs, the lack of preparation for the what ifs, isn't it? And then the recognition of just really what people are going through and 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 how fortunate you are. Look, playing four weeks in a row on the PGA Tour in the heat of the summer is so hard. And mm -hmm. I know that other athletes go, it's not a sport. Give it a try. Okay. And then be mm -hmm. playing well and be in contention around 30,000 people and do that for 28 days in a row almost. Yeah. And also throw in corporate outings and it's, it's a high neural load, right? So, of course, everyone's losing their mind all the time. It's because everyone's out of juice, right? Like, everyone is out of juice. So, the guy who wins is the one who's just the best when he's out of juice. And so, mm -hmm. over 60% of the time, those guys train the hardest scenario. And so, I remember going down to Jupiter one time with Tiger. And uh, it was typical Florida in July before the British Open. This was before Litham in 12... I've, I've kind of lost track. I've been to all of them about three times. Um, and the big man is down there hitting balls and he's just got sweat dripping off his hat. Just dripping off his hat. So I put the track man on and he's in rain gear. And because I talk a lot, I used to annoy him. So it would kind of be speak when spoken to. So I would just have to chill and, and wait. Right. And we would talk during lunch. And that was fine. He, he liked he liked my what I had to say. But on the range, he wanted to concentrate. And I maybe can be difficult to do that around. I learned that during that time, Pierce. So <laughs> um, that's one of those things I would say. It's so I'm sitting there. And then I just ask him, what are you doing? He's like, well, the British Open's in two weeks. And uh, I don't like playing in rain gear. And I was like, well, who likes playing in rain gear? He said, so I want to hit some balls and look at like my club head speeds and see if anything comes up um, and I have to adapt to it. So whatever, we hit balls in it. He's slower than normal. Um, and the face is a little more variable than normal. And he just goes, make sure that, you know, when I do this, when we get over there, that I just unweight my front foot more because it just gives me more time to release the club. And that was it. And then I get to the British Open two weeks later and at least 50% of the people around me are completely losing their mind because they are hitting it sideways in rain gear. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That, that, I mean, there, there you go. Uh, with Tigers, 7 o'clock meant 6.30. And with some of them, 7 o'clock means I can still go to Starbucks even if the lineup is too long and get there by 7.45 and still beat them. Yeah. So preparation and being early. I mean, is the way to be a GOAT not even special is it not even talent and it i don't think it is i really don't think it is it's just it mattered to him so much that he just did it right and yeah. he wanted to be he didn't he didn't mind making mistakes he just you know when he used to get upset you know sometimes he would hit it on the green and get upset and i would ask him like when you get mad what are you mad at and he'd say well he said 
I'm mad at the process. I'm never mad at the result. He's like, I appreciate how hard this is. Um, when you see me mad, it's because I pulled the trigger and I wasn't ready and I knew it. And that's arrogant and golf's already hard. And I, that's just, I'm, I'm, I have no chance before I start. It wasn't that he hit it in the water. It wasn't that he three putted. It was, uh, it was, he was upset at the process and you'd hear him go, you know, God, tiger. It wasn't because it was going out of bounds. It was because he's like, Oh, you shouldn't have done that. You should have stopped and started over, but you didn't. So he was mad at the he was mad at the things that he could control, which was the process, the outcome he couldn't control, which is a great message for the listeners on this. It's like, you know, as soon as that ball's gone, it's gone, isn't it? You can't control it, but you have every ability to plan and go through the process to execute that shot in, in the best possible way. Well, how many times did he hit a bad shot and not get upset? Like a lot, right? Mm. A, a lot. So, you know, plus, but what was also cool about Tiger is, you know, he gave us both. He yeah. gave us the fifth pump and he gave us the club throw. And, mm. you know, I think the problem with a lot of players is that we'll be standing on the range or playing nine holes and what they're doing is spectacular. And that almost becomes an expectation. And then when it's not good, there's this, you know, there's more of an emotional reaction. And the problem with the problem with with the the higher the level of reaction or the the there's a stimulus and then the response, the higher emotional response we have. How's the right way to say this? Basically, the deeper we react to it, the deeper we reinforce it. So, like, for example, where were you on 9-11? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you're and you're English. Yeah. It's just who's yeah. ever, you know, that why does everyone in the world know that? Right. Can I can picture I can picture the doctor's glasses when my wife was giving birth to my son. I can remember the smell of the room, but I can't even tell you what I did yesterday. So I think, you know, that's the problem is that when hitting a five iron to five feet becomes like a tap of the cap and not walking back and going, man, that was so good. But when you do something that's variable and inconsistent, which is more the math of the game, you think something's wrong. So when you do something special, you don't acknowledge it. And when you do something you should do, you think you're doing something wrong. That's not the mechanics of this. That's not how it works. Do you know what we just said there? If everyone just were to play that back, what you just said there, listen to this podcast, that's the only thing they got out of it. I think there'd be a lot better golfer through a period <laughs> yeah. of time. Really yeah, you got to train. Look, you got to train at it, right? You got to damn gotta right. Train. You you got to, and you know what's even funny is like just the variability of it all. Like, you know, I every day I go in for five minutes into a cold plunge, and it's pretty. It's cold. It's like very cold. And I was giggling today, thinking to myself while I was in it, how I felt like I got to sat in there for an hour. It wasn't even cold today, but it was mm. two degrees colder than it was yesterday when I tried to get out for five minutes. Mm. I don't. And, and so then there was a part of me that said, OK, Sean, why was it? What did you do today or last night? And then the other part of me said, dude, you're just speculating. There's no answer for this. And so mm -hmm. I think as a coach, that's important is to be there because they are these creative, brilliant geniuses. And, and they're they they're hitting the ball and getting the feedback. We're not. I mean, when we get a when we get an app that we can get a vibration in our hands of what they're feeling through impact. It's going to become a lot more clear, isn't it? It'd be easier yeah. to do that. So I think 
you know, getting them to understand like probabilities and the data, you know, part of anger management is sitting with Mark Brody and recognizing you're not as good as you think you are. And mm -hmm. if, if you're this good, but you think you're this good, then the space between that over time is like, if you're this good, this is your truth. If you think you're this good, that's your reality. Reality's not permanent. So what is going to be in between there when you go and participate in the task? It's just going to be frustration. And frustration comes from, and stress comes from when we're here thinking of being there or from we, when we're, we are something thinking we're something else. So I think it's very important to know exactly where you're at and then to understand like, you know, for example, 200 yards on the PGA tour, that's where greens and regulation go to 48%. So, you know, we've all done it ourselves as players, but you know, you're out there with players and there's a right pin and it's 210 and the wind's blowing off the right. And it sounds very elegant to say, I'm going to hit a hold up. I'm going to take a little off of five iron and hit a hold up fade into the wind. And it's like, well, if we back foot a six iron and hook it 20 yards to the middle of the green, we're still going to gain strokes on the field. And I know you can do that. And I'm really not sure you can do the other one because I haven't even seen you practice it for a month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it's like, okay, you're going to take a little off a, off, a, off a club that's not going to spin as much. And the wind is hard off the right. So we need spin to curve it into the wind. And this is ridiculous. And so it either goes 240 yards left or 185, and both of them end up in bogey. Then we press it, and we make a double, and all we had to do was back foot and hit a big divot snap hook. <laughs> like So there's, the, there's the, the beauty of working on the technique with the vision of it being a, a David, but then there's the day-to-day -day of like, what's the easiest way to get this ball on the green? Well, if it's the the easiest way for me would be if I did this. Well, that normally doesn't involve them thinking of their backswing and their transition. <laughs> like it really doesn't. So that's where I've got better is that um, I just feel like I'm less dangerous now. Yeah. And I think, I think there's great messages in there for, for all the golfers with this is really understanding and getting the right level of expectations. We had somebody on a, a performance coach a while ago. And he said, golfers make it really easy to feel bad on the golf course and really hard to feel good because of what they expect and, and you know, where they are with the game. Um, and also just trying to do things that they haven't practiced and even executed before. Like, like you say, if they're trying to hit a hold up or a draw to a, to a tight left pin that they haven't practiced in weeks or never practiced at all, and then hit the shot, don't pull it off and then get annoyed really. So I think there's some, there's some great messages in there. Um, I'd love to go into some 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 technique stuff as well, really, uh, Sean, for the listeners on this. Actually, just 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 quickly, um, Andy, I have a, a like a really quick, great Kenny Perry story. So oh, yeah. Kenny Perfect. Kenny Perry, Kentucky native, fantastic, like lovely guy, one of the great laughs of all time. You can hear him laughing from a hole away, and you know Kenny made like forty million in his forties and was right there, right all the time, and what a career. And, you know, he used to hit like quite a sizable push draw. And so one day we're out on the golf course in a practice round and we were talking down the fairway and the hole had a right pin. And Kenny stepped up there and started at the pin and drew it in the middle of the green. And I said, so, Kenny, what do you do to a right pin? Like, how do you fade it? And he goes, don't know, never tried. 
there we go. And I was like, that's the maybe the most incredible thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, <laughs> don't know, never tried. Hope there's more middle and left pins, right? Brilliant. So Brilliant. pretty cool. But anyways, it's yeah, good no, to know uh, what you are. Yeah, it yeah. is. You know, I'm. I always remember, and you might, you might have been there actually, Sean. This is another story I think was brilliant. Um, it was at the um, Orlando show a few years ago, and uh, Al Sutton was speaking. I'm not sure if you were there with that. Were you there at that I conference? Don't, I don't think so, but I've heard him before. Oh, and he was so he was so good. He like he was really impressive, and he said that he was talking about you know trying to win the Masters, and he said basically that some. Um, press or media said that he will never win the Masters because he doesn't hit the ball high enough. So just because somebody in the press said he doesn't hit the golf ball high enough, he said he went away to try and hit the golf ball high and, and do all these things that he that he didn't ever do before. And he said it completely messed him up because he was insecure of what other people were saying about him. But it was it was just such a great story. And then he finished off with saying, well, when I was younger, he says, all I went out on the golf course to do was to go and go and hit it close and make birdies. He said, that's all I would try and do, hit it close and make birdies. So he went back to what worked for him, which was in his simplest forms, let's get out there and try and make birdies in the way he liked to play the game. But he, I mean, he was so good to listen to. Me and Pierce were like, wow, that was like really compelling, really compelling. Well, how, I mean, how about having to draw the ball to Augusta and I watched Brooks Kepka and John Rahm hit slices on every hole. Yeah, but, but that's it though, right? That's we have to challenge the belief system to play the to win at Augusta. You got to draw the ball. I mean, I'm sorry, but that I with those red tracers going out, it <laughs> it looked like it it looked like a 30 handicap with a 185 ball speed. I'll tell you what, if I had 185 ball speed, boys, I would be slicing it too because I'm good at slicing it. Hitting the hitting the lovely push draw happens like once in ten times, um, and the slice is very easy to hit. <laughs> yeah. It just shows how easy it is to get wrapped up in a belief, and then 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 totally. is your whole your the whole yes. way you play the game and perform really. Um, yes, I want to get into some some things for the for the listeners on this in terms of look you've been you've been around and coached for a long time, seen lots of things. I'm sure that your coaching over time has got simpler and simpler. Um, I'd like to talk about irons really, and, and certainly for the average golfer listening to this. Where where are golfers going wrong when it comes to iron play? If we were just to simplify like some key things, they're they're listening to this, they want to work at their irons. Where do you see that they're going wrong and what could they look at and focus on that would help them with their iron play? Well, it, two parts. The, the first part would be score part. Is just find out how far you actually hit them. Okay? Like I see in so many pro-ams, I see so many nice iron shots that land in the front bunker. I mean, so many, right? And and the thing is, the guy will hit it, or the, it's mostly men. Women normally hit it like they are. They know how far they hit. <laughs> right? They, I never thought about that, but they they know exactly how far they hit it. I think a lot of guys think they know, think they hit it a certain distance. Um, and and isn't that just the truth? We got and too so, much uh, ego. There's too much ego with us, man. That's the problem. Yes, yeah, too much insecurity, correct. Yeah. So, um, you know, they'll hit it and they'll be like, go. And I'm, and I know it's, I didn't even hit it and I know it's 20 yards short. So, mm. it, you know, last time I finished a round of golf, no one asked me if I was on plane. They asked me what I shot. So, if we look at this as what we shoot, um, you know, if, you, if they have the opportunity to go somewhere where they can hit 
you know, warm up and then hit 10 iron shots with each one and look at the average and kind of get that as a baseline, that would be a good start, right? That would be a really good start. Um, because then they would know how far they hit it. So maybe they don't hit it as far and their subconscious knows that. So then when they go on the course, they try to hit it harder and whatever force they apply to what's already probably slightly not great risk conditions is going to make a lot of bad things happen. Right. So I think, look, what's the difference between, you know, a tour player in transition and an impact and an amateur um, amateurs have more right arm bend than tour players do. And so the thing is, when we look at people at impact, most of the time their arms are straight. Yeah, there's a few guys whose right arm is bent, and I know it looks sexy, but it's not really realistic, okay? it That phase in the golf swing is called the extension phase. So we're not supposed to be getting shorter, all right? But if you look in, in, in the Major League Baseball, there's five or six guys who – pitch from sidearm and have a lot of side bend but there's probably that many pro golfers too it just we've become way too infatuated with that um way too infatuated with that so the whole goal to landing the club on the ground is being able to extend my arms out to how they started so if my right arm is too bent at the top and my left wrist is too cupped well as soon as i go to apply anything down towards that ball Everything is going to go out like over the top doesn't happen for the same reason we used to think it did is for a completely different reason. And the fact is, if you look at players and, and 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 pros, there's slightly different levels of slight extension to a lot of flexion. There isn't really a lot of extension, is there? I, I've yet to see. And the only person who has that much extension has a super strong left hand grip anyways. So then that kind of suits it, right? But that strong of a grip's a bit of an outlier. You don't really see that much anymore. I would say if you look at the top 10 players in the world, if anything, when we were growing up, boys, they would have said our grip's too weak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But if you think about it, like a weak grip, right? Like the problem with golf is the language. So make a backswing. When you say backswing to a beginner, they always look backwards. It's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, it's like a side swing, isn't it? It's not really a back swing. You're not really taking it back. Um, downswing follow through. What if we call those um, stretch phase, counter rotation phase, and extension phase, which is what they are? And they've been they've been in the DNA of our body since we've been our ancestors were throwing spears at animals when we were hunting. So the ability to generate you know force and velocity through this whole system of our interaction with the ground how our muscles contract, fascial slings, all these different things. We all have the capacity to do this, but no one could have thrown a spear overhead like this. They would have still been like this. And so with Dave Woods and I, and you know, obviously we're not the first person to understand the importance of right wrist extension. The reason we built the Pro Sender was to, I, I still to this day, and I guess, you know, we become a little bougie because we work with tour players. And there's not many tour players whose wrist angles are terrible because they wouldn't be on tour, right? Um, is I find it very difficult to teach to 25 handicaps 
how to get in the right position to release the club and throw it. And so, you know, when we look at the the players right now, we look at Rom. Rom is like this. Now, I think he also does that because the disadvantage that he had of making a big backswing, he had to get the mass of the club behind him enough that he could then go ahead and, and create force with it. Obviously, I've never seen anyone successful who has a long backswing and they're laid off. And I've never seen anyone with a short backswing across the line who isn't stuck at impact. So, look, the club wants to swing. It's been designed to swing in this atmosphere a certain way. And a lot of that has to do with it coming from behind us, not in front of us. So we've seen all these, you know, um, kind of aesthetic far out ideas of how to do that. Right. And and hats off to everyone. I mean, I'll tell you what, when George Yankis, I met George Yankis in 2009. Um, and I've had a friendship with him, a very close friendship with him ever since. I, he, when he came out and, and started to, 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 to make headlines, I really appreciated how much I learned from what he perceived as important too. And it, it, it is very, very, um, effective and usable. Um, and George is an amazing coach. And, and it, I would watch George debate anybody about this stuff. The guy's brilliant. But I also have a background with a lot of physios and chiros because I started establishing relationships with these guys because I wanted my players going to people who could keep their body. You know, the thing is, every player on tour has a great engine, but all everyone's chassis aren't made the same. Right. So if your chassis breaks down, you can't turn the engine on anyway. So it was always imperative for me, the amount of mentorship I had from 2000 till 2006 from physios and chiropractors and athletic trainers that I really wanted to in influence that into golf. And, and we really did. We, we it was being done, but we, we really streamlined it. And. You know, th there's the importance of how their body moves. But, you know, these guys really, really move. And I don't think that all the people that are listening on to this who are trying to get better are going to have the time or be able to invest the money in hiring people to do that. But what is the thing that we can teach them all to do? Like a tour player, we could teach them all to stand like a tour player. Standing's very important, by the way. I have been referred to as the most expensive standing coach in history by Justin <laughs> Rhodes. Okay. <laughs> Right. He's, one day I was, I was working on his posture or whatever, and he started to hit it better. He goes, you know what? You're the most expensive standing coach in the world. And I said, <laughs> I may be. I, I, I may be. But you know what, bud? I think when you stand well, you got a real chance at this. Okay. But isn't it interesting, though, Sean, as well, for maybe even the listeners to this and most people on the outside of what you do would look at what you do and with the information of the golf swing and the biomechanics and all these other things they would think that you would be going into more of the technical stuff. And you even mentioned with um, Lydia Ko of having this, um, almost this blueprint of, of what works for her, which was posture and alignment. And I think you mentioned one other thing. And it's a lot of this, the simple stuff and a lot of how we stand, we know that that has a huge impact on, on everything else, the connection to the ground oh. and the movement of the body. It's like, it's just so key that a lot of golfers aren't really paying attention to. 
the thing is, though, is it's amazing is how they'll go into the gym, though, and they will get their posture perfect on a deadlift. Because, look, if I get compromised in position to move that weight up, I'm in trouble, right? So it's – but the difference is, I think, is because the weight is so heavy, the brain will start to kind of articulate the position – like, obviously, you have to teach people who haven't done deadlifts before. But if you put an athlete in the gym who was going to learn, to, was going to do deadlifts, they're probably going to find a pretty primal position to do it, right? Yeah. But the problem with the golf, the problem with golf is the club is so light, it doesn't really tell us kind of what to do. And I think the fact that, you know, and maybe, you know, people have their beliefs and stuff, but, you know, as, as I believe with applied evolution – is as we've come from primates, you know, we used to be on all fours. So that kind of kyphosis in the middle of the spine, you know, I remember sitting at the table and my mom going, you know, sit up, put your chest out, put your chin up. And I remember going like, how hard is it to sit like this? You know, like, but she, this was slouching, but this actually now has my rib cage over my diaphragm, which means I'm going to breathe better. I couldn't even breathe from here. <laughs> And then, and then when I did, the air got in the top of my chest and then I went sympathetic because I breathed above my vagus nerve, which I all learned later and was like, all right, so you should have kept talking and you should have stopped standing like that. But I didn't mind it, Andy, because it made me feel about five, seven. So that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> Andy, when I look at when I whenever I see a picture of myself, I'm stunned because when I look in the mirror, I see both of your height. I'm like, what is going on with this? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, posture people like. Oh yeah, he coaches posture. Oh, posture is a fifty-page essay. Like it's a fifty-page essay. The positioning of the feet, the positioning of the grip. I think the most fascinating thing is that we have the ability to measure the ground. We have the ability to measure the body. We have the ability to measure the ball flight, and we don't truly have sensors yet in the grip that's measuring what really is the meat and potatoes of the whole situation, right? We talk about Tiger and Seve and 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 we say they have great hands. We talk about quarterbacks in the NFL. We say they have great arms. No one's ever said Messi has great arms. They say, man, Messi has great feet. He kicks a ball. We swing a club. Why are we talking about the feet so much? What are we doing? <laughs> right? What are we doing? Like, what are we doing? Okay? So it, it really is just so – it's so true. We talk about ground reaction forces. Their reaction forces, I appreciate the importance of it. But if someone can't use their big toe and contract their glute and then fire their quad, how are they going to stand up unless they stand up and back up? And you go, wow, you created more vertical force. And I'm like, your $11 Pro V1 is in the lake now. Let's, <laughs> like, let's, let's impact positions on the PGA Tour are a little bit different, but only because the way they grip it is slightly different, but the forces being applied and the torques being applied are all the same. So we, the problem is we run into style and dynamics. So style as an example is that, you know, you say to me, I like Guinness and I say, I like Heineken and people go, and then they argue about it. Well, I'm, this is why Guinness is better. And this is look, the dynamic is we like it because it's got fermented sugar. Okay. <laughs> so if you like <laughs> you, somebody can like, you know, a uh, uh, chocolate chip cookie, someone can like a brownie, but at the end of the day, they both like the sugar. So the sugar and where the rubber meets the road in the golf swing, 
has to do with what the grip, with the, with what our grip is doing to the grip with this thing that's attached to us that's supposed to swing at really high velocities. And there's certain points that you can get it to and it won't swing at high velocities because it'll be trying to find its way back to where it can be swung again. And that for our amateurs is over the top with an open face. So it's amazing when you, you know, when you look at great players, you're typically always trying to fix a hook. And with amateurs, you're always trying to fix a slice. So to me, guys, it, the, the, the main thing is that there's so much I could teach any person how to turn their body and shift their weight. Mm. But I can't teach everyone how to get that club in transition to do the things that match how they grip it. Um, so I'm, I'm look, of, of course, I'm doing a shout out to ProSender, but we didn't like, boys, I've been in the game a long time. You've never seen me do a training aid. I trust you that if I was going to do one, it would be, and I've, and I've turned down a lot of opportunities because there's no way I could see my, my face next to that money's not that important for me to kind of sell my coaching soul over that. So that's why we completely believe in it. And, you know, with Lydia, we did that stuff too, but that's the attachment of the compression sphere between the arms. And so, you know, we did work posture and all that, but because the position of the body is so important and what happens after it, you know, once we did that, we just tried to get to very neutral risk conditions so she could release it as hard as she wanted on the way down. Because, you know, we're trying to talk about playing a game with, you know, where the face is more stable um, through it. And look, I've been completely guilty of this, but, but I, but I learned from it. And then you listen to the people at ping with the Enzo talk about these extremely high rates of closure in the golf club. Mm -hmm. And so how can things be closing if things aren't closing them and what's closing them? Of course, I understand the physics of, of the forces and all that, but I have to be doing something myself. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I just feel like at an amateur level, we we're not paying enough attention to how they learn how to rotate their forearms and bend their wrist and do it on the other side because we're too busy worried about tilts and turns. It's that's just not it. I think it's um it's it's always interesting because I think we the amount of lessons that we've given over the years and golfers with the ability to video their own swing now, uh, which is great, but it's also very harmful is that golfers will see the big things. They'll see the the not rotating the the hips. They'll see themselves not doing certain things with their body, maybe leaving too much weight on the on the back, on the back foot. But these are the symptoms of often the things that you're talking about here. These are the reactions of the body trying to compensate in a way to square the face and deliver something to the golf ball instead of attaching the root cause, which is often, well, how do we manage the face? How do we manage the wrist angles and the arms to, to do a better job so the body can react to a better club face? So a, a couple of things that really helped me. One, I was a, I love Bob Toski and Jim Flick, and that's what it was all about, right? The hands and arms, the body reacts to the hands and arms. And if, if you've ever watched, well, he's older now, but I was able younger to see Bob Toski hit balls and, you know, He's very slight, very small, doesn't weigh anything and could smash golf balls. And so for me, I really was into I was I was into that um, in a big way. Uh, Toski made sense to me. Like I was like, that makes sense. When I did what he said, I noticed like, wow, that's better. And then in 2001, when I was at Glen Abbey in Toronto, 
2002, maybe I was director of instruction there. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, but I had the title. Um, and so he came to do a corporate outing and he sat on the front of the range and did his exhibition. And, you know, he's one of the first like celebrity long drivers, you know, I, I I'd seen it before on TV, but he kind of, you know, he was there, uh, doing the, the thing for the whole day. And then he sat on 18 and 18 was 520 yard par five and he'd hit the tee shot and the amateur team could play from there. Right. So it was, I spent the whole day with him and, you know, obviously he's incredible looking. I mean, he's like, a you know, he's not that tall. He's only five, nine, but he's super fit, really strong. Looks like he could play running back in the NFL. So it's easy to look at him and go, ah, I see. And then you see his swing and he's, you know, lifting his leg up and he's past parallel and he's jumping out of the ground and it's like, ah, ah. But then, then the big homie, and I'm friends with him to this day and I really admire him. He's a fantastic guy. Um, it's very, very brilliant guy. If you want to talk about club head speed, just call him, man. He's, he like forgot more than most people know and he can do it. Right. So he gets on a, on a swift ball. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Right. Like this, Andy, the stuff that appears, the stuff that, Andy does squats on, you know what I mean? The crazy stuff. There's <laughs> a, a good story there, one, but we won't tell oh, you. Oh, there's a story there, Sean. I'll tell you that one I, next I, time I, I see, could see I could see him doing snatches on one, just like, <laughs> let's go. Um, and uh, he gets on his knees, and then he tees it super high, like on a fairly high tee. And then he kind of gets in there and makes a couple backswings, a couple backswings, and then just wham, and hits this thing 320 yards in the air, right? Now there, you know, he's attached to the ground technically, and he's, he, you know, he's obviously got a second ground called his ridiculous core. Important, right? Okay, pretty important. I mean, that's having two things to push off of, and or turn off of, or whatever. And then he gets up and does the rest of everything, and hits it three seventy in there. But I'm like, hmm, and it's it's me, right? Like. You know, they they told me that, you know, I heard the thing and it said liberty and justice for all. And I was a kid and I was like, yeah, that's cool. But I don't really see liberty and justice for all. So what do you mean? Right. So I, I was always as soon as some I had a good, pretty good bullshit detector, I think, in my life. And as soon as he did that and then I asked him and he said, man. You know, obviously, the big muscles are are important and they're kind of the earthquake that starts the tsunami. But my club head speed is coming from how fast my hands are moving and how they change direction, how I whip this thing through space. And he just kept doing that with his arms and his arms were as big as his legs. And I was like, and then they're telling us, you know, make sure you don't bench press because you don't want to get tight in your pecs. And then years later, you know, a bunch of PhDs come out and say the pecs fire at the second highest capacity to the um, glutes. And you're like, oh, <laughs> so... You know, we've been found that drive for show, putt for dough is just a saying because I'd rather be the best driver in the world than the best putter in the world, boys. Mm. Yeah. And you can see that with some some of the players. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. Well, uh, look, Sean, let's, let's tell you what we need to do. Uh, we probably, we, I'm sure we could be carrying these conversations um, <laughs> again, but we do need to do this. Let's do some quick fire. We're just conscious of your time. These quick fires are good and I'm actually, they're, they're quite generic but there's a couple of them that we really like, and I think I'm really excited to hear what you're going to say on it. So um, first one, best piece of golf advice you ever had? 
Oh. <laughs> Best piece. And from whom as well, I suppose. I don't know. I'll probably Tiger. No, no, and I don't think he came up with it, but it doesn't matter because as soon as he says it, he owns it, right? He's the goat. <laughs> um, no pictures on a scorecard. There you go. Nice. Perfect. What's the worst advice you hear? Um, clear your hips. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. <laughs> what, if anything, would you change about golf? Deep in thought, Pierce. There's some, there's some good ones. Good... This is great asking somebody whose job it is to change things in golf. <laughs> well, golfers, anyway. <laughs> um, like at an amateur level, that it would be more inclusive, and at a professional level, that there would be a shot clock. Okay, there we go. I like it. I like it. Um, what's the best thing about golf? Not, not. I don't just mean inclusive. I mean cheaper. Like you guys have it right over there. You know what I mean? When I was up in Gullen at the Scottish Open, when I found out what all those kids could play for, mm. it it literally didn't wipe anyone out from being able to play golf. It yeah, hundred percent. You know, and I think why is there so many at times? Why has there been so many players in the top hundred in the world from England? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think one, it's you know the conditions are difficult and different, and and all that, and there's different variations of seaside to inland and all that. But you're just gonna have way more chances at it. Um, Accessibility, so, yeah, I like it. So that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, love it, I love it. Uh, best thing about golf for you. It's just being outside, walking on the earth, feeling the sun. Doesn't get much better. Doesn't get much better. So I, I certainly, I certainly don't like golf when it's freezing and raining. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, that's why that answer is true because my boys will call me and it'll be raining and a little bit cold, and I'm like, no chance am I going to do that right now, <laughs> right? This I got a thing. It's 70 to 75 degrees with zero wind and middle pins, and then I'm playing otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Last one. Three golf truths. Three things that are true to golf. True to you. True to golf. Three things that are true to golf. Uh, humility is a weapon. You're only as good as your last shot. And the more mistakes you make, the better you'll be. Mm, nice. I think if everyone just to listen to those, and we knew that when we have that, someone who's insightful and philosophical, 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 what? philosophical, philosophical. Is easy for me to say. That's a new word. You don't know that word, no? <laughs> but someone someone like you I was, is, we're always interested to find out what you would say on things like that but I think and, and I always then say just as the golfer listening to this bear in mind what you just said to those three golf truths and I think that you know golfers can just get better because I think we Look, just get we get in our way so often don't we as golfers at, at, at just as humans right at, at Isleworth it, it is not as golfers it's as humans I bet your surgeons are like you know what fuck we get in our own way you know um, I bet it's everything school teachers, you name it is, um, where I, uh, coach out of at Isleworth in one of the hitting bays is a Arnold Palmer. Cause obviously this is his area, right? Like Orlando is Arnie heaven. Um, and rightfully so, um, 
it's his quote on the wall. And it's not the extended quote, but it's the first part of the quote. And I just think that when you watch when you watch Palmer play and you can, you know, go on YouTube and watch it, you know, of course he was of course he was handsome and, and athletic and dressed great and but but the 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 aura I think comes from somebody who's really just like you know almost immersed in the truth of what it is they're doing. And so the quote is golf is deceptively simple and endlessly complicated. And so this is arguably top five player of all time who understood that it was deceptively simple. So if I deceive, if I deceive you, I lie to you. So when it seems simple, it's, it's just a lie and it's endlessly complicated. Endlessly means till infinity. So here's a guy who was one of the best to do it, who still found it endlessly complicated. And within that is the beauty and the charm of it. So, of course, he was never going to really lose his mind on the golf course because when it wasn't going his way, he just accepted that that's what it is. And, you know, he looked very patient on the golf course, but I think patience isn't something that you you can have. I think it's a deeper understanding. So, you know, for me, when they tell me that my flight's delayed, I don't really get upset because since COVID, 95% of my flights have been delayed. So I might look patient to everyone else who's screaming, but I fully go into the airport expecting my flight to be delayed. And so when it is, I'm like, say la vie. And when it's not, I'm like, sweet. And I feel like when you understand the truth of something, you know, there's more joy than there is the other side. And when you don't, it's the other way around. So I just think his, his, his ability to realize that the charm of the game was the pure difficulty and just the, the inconsistency and variability of it rather than try to figure it out, he just accepted it. Um, and I think that's powerful. I think that's just one of the best things. I think it's one of the best things that the listeners can take from this. You know, we often talk about golf just being chaos and just chaotic and just embracing the chaos. And um, one of the, one of the, the best things I think said on this podcast before was, I mean, somebody who does that, we've done some stuff with recently Harrington, He's a guy who just embraces the chaos. And he said before, like, he was like, I never deserve to make a bogey. He's like, if he's at a bad shot, he's just like, I'm going to find it and I'm going to do my best to just get to the ball and just and just get around the golf course, understanding that it's just all over the place. And because of that, that mindset, that, that just changes his whole perception of how he views the game. His emotions are under control and he's just enjoying what is, as opposed to trying to fix and improve what like you know what could be really yep i mean when people say you know it bothers me when i'm playing and this happens you know when we understand that we define what the it is that's a whole freeing time there's no it it is just it's you you're it like so it's i've had players where they've come in and complained about slow play and it, it happens i get it I mean, I'm out there watching too. I'm hot, bro. I'm I'm super hot, right? And some of these courses don't have trees anymore, so there's nowhere to stand. And I, you know, don't wear a hat. Um, and it takes four hours and fifty nine minutes to play. And then the next day, uh, they came off and said, "Yeah, that was much better today." You know, I, I enjoyed that pace of play more, and they played in five hours and one minute. So it's like, you know, none of us like slow play. 
And I think it's okay to go, oh man, this group is so slow. And after you've done that and embraced the reality at that moment, then it's like, what else am I going to do? So I might just look at a tree and look at the branch structure and be like, wow, that's pretty crazy. That looks like the root of my brain. I, there's, I, I have a choice to do something else. I don't have to just sit there and asphyxiate on. And, and then, you know, when you start watching them, it get, they take even more time, even though they're not, right? It's like the, the problem with the last, you know, you go on a 13-hour flight. The last hour is torture. But like hour three to 10 was full acceptance. I'll get there when I get there. But then they go, we are an hour away from landing. I mean, you sit there, keep, keep hitting the screen, whereas you didn't even look at the screen for like the whole time. So that's interesting. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, Sean, thank you so much for, for your time. I mean, there's, there's, I think we could probably do a podcast. Um, yeah, there's so much, there's so many things that we could go into, but, and, and look, you've been a, you mentioned something at the start of this podcast when you were next to certain um, like icons or idols of your game. And when we've been at recent events, um, we've been in that same scenario, standing next to you. You're somebody we've looked up to as, as a golf coach in the industry. And to be standing on the same range as you doing that is a very, is a, is a privilege for us. And look, thank you for all the work that you've done for this sport and for coaching it's great to be able to get to to interview you and just listen to the um, the extensive knowledge, experience, and how much you're learning and growing. Um, there's a lot more to to you than than what people see, and hopefully this podcast can sort of showcase that as well. So uh, appreciate your time. Yeah, no, that's an honor that 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 you say it. That you know that to me is like you know that 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 for me is as good as it gets. That that's uh, uh, that's gold because you know. As, as you guys know, there's the perception of people and then there's really what happens. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that my mom and dad taught me that kindness and compassion is the most important thing and that no one is separate of anybody else. And, you know, I've always I've always been that way. And I, I think sometimes it it you know, it's a sad statement when I meet a, a, a younger pro at, a, at an event, even though I'm not that old yet. But I, some days I feel pretty old. Um, and, you know, they they say, man. I can't believe like you're so down to earth. And I'm like, well, where else am I standing, bro? You know what I mean? Like that's, that's, that's where I am. I'm like, I feel like a fraud half the time. Stop giving me compliments. I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and boys, hats off to you guys too. You guys, I, I did some pioneering of my own and you guys have pioneered something as well. And I think from, you know, your example and how you looked at it and you guys all obviously have great knowledge and you love the game and you're savvy and you work hard and look, this shit's not easy to, to be doing these things. It's great, but it's, it's a grind. And I think that you gave a lot of, of teaching pros, um, you know, maybe open their minds to other ways to run their business. That's probably progressed and helped, a, uh, helped a lot of people. I was in position where I didn't really have to go down that road to do that. Um, I was kind of just preceding for years that time where that became a thing. And so, uh, you know, I've learned from watching what you guys are are doing too. But I also, when I see you guys with air and I, I you know, I, I, I see that, but whatever you say to him, it's whatever the fact that you're there and you care for him, that's probably worth two strokes a day. And that's, that, that's really what coaching is, right? What did, what did Alice Ferguson do? He didn't teach anyone how to play soccer. Um, he challenged different individuals, inspired them through their own motivation to be the best they could be. And sometimes you just need someone else to 
um, you know, to help you do that. And I feel like when we do that ourselves, we're also working on ourselves, you know, and I, I think that's great. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. No, thank you. And where's the best place for um, people to go and find you? I know you do some nice um, lengthy uh, posts on Instagram <laughs> that are uh, that are super detailed that people could go and listen to, but they, in, in all seriousness, they are, and they're, they're obviously very good. So. Yeah, no, I've been told not, I've been told to not do those. <laughs> don't be you're too you're too authentic that's the problem you're too authentic they, they told me that they told me that like the thing was five minutes and everyone dropped off at a minute and i was like oh the best shit was in minute four I, I don't know i don't know how not to do me you know what i mean i spent my whole life trying to be somebody else i ain't gonna even try for one day to be somebody else now right i'm i'm uh let's just say i'm secure with my insecurities i'm locked in <laughs> We'll put the we'll put the necessary links down in the bottom for you, Sean. Yeah, Sean, yeah, Sean Foley Performance. Obviously, Dave and I are at uh, ProSenderGolf.com. Uh, um, and then I have uh, just recently um, put my name, Sean Foley Performance, at the Learning Center up at Frederica in uh, St. Simon. So I will be available for instruction there. Obviously, first poll goes to the members but i'm also allowed to uh, uh work with the public there so i'm looking forward to that i'm i'm evolving too you know with you guys it's uh it's i'm not just going to be able to stand there forever on that range and and hope they show up on time right and then hope i don't <laughs> screw them up so i feel pretty safe now i feel pretty strong with a 20 handicap that i know what i'm doing so brilliant well look sean thanks so much appreciate your time and um we'll look forward to getting to seeing you soon and hopefully maybe we can do like uh, something in video in the future all right boys all the best eh? thanks, thanks sean. sean appreciate that see you soon pierce another great podcast uh, another great guest i mean look you know had to have somebody on like sean you know uh, an amazing successful golf coach who has uh worked with you know arguably the best player in the world you can just see how how well-rounded his knowledge is um not only in the golf swing but also in <laughs> human beings which is just an equal part of uh, being a golf coach yeah do you know what i think you know we said about his obviously his last because he was so philosophical philosophical <laughs> um the last the, the last few things that he said i thought were really insightful i wrote down another couple of notes in there you know what are the non-negotiables for you as a, as a golfer we talk about yeah. that a lot with aaron what are the non-negotiables and uh, the one here it's good to know who you are <laughs> you're looking at my tongue twisting again it's good to know who you are don't try and be someone that you aren't and i think that's really good so understanding who you are what yardage you hit an iron but also what ball flight you use you know don't try and be something someone who wants to hit the ball who thinks they hit the ball further or someone who thinks they should be drawing it i think that's really really powerful information for anyone who's wanting to play golf so yeah great stuff from him as as always we have great conversations with him so yeah i really enjoyed it good good guys thank you so much for listening a slightly longer one um than usual but hopefully you managed to just take some notes and enjoy um enjoy the podcast remember to subscribe to this guys we've got some great guests coming up um and also if you haven't already make sure you download the me and my golf app to check out some of our best coaching plans to help your game or just head over to meandmygolf.com. But thank you so much for listening and we'll look forward to speaking to you next week.